All right, Genesis chapter number 3 this morning. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture, but I want, if the Lord will help us, to uh, focus in on a particular thought this morning that the Lord has laid on my heart. Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse number 1. The Word of God says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. Now we know who the serpent is. The serpent is the devil. The Bible says, And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. The serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you for this another day, another opportunity. Your faithfulness has brought us through this past week. Lord, Your grace has brought us to this place this morning. Your providence has put the Word of God in our hands and in our hearts. And Lord, I just know that You have us here for a reason today. We are not here by accident. We're here by providence. Lord, I pray that the precious, powerful, living Word of God would have free reign and liberty as the Holy Ghost applies it in our hearts and minds today. I don't know the heart's condition of these under the sound of my voice, but I'm glad you do, Lord. You know the number of hairs on our head. You uh, bottle up our tears. You know our heartaches and sorrows. Lord, you know our sins. You know the areas of our life that need to be reconciled unto you and adjusted and repented of and submitted and surrendered. I just pray, Lord, that you would have your perfect will and way in everything that takes place. Let there be no barriers. Let there be no hindrance. Let us not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let us not quench the Holy Spirit. But let us, Father, have our hearts open to what you would seek to do today. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, I love you, and I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In the passage that we have read this morning, there are basically three statements that the Lord, or that, uh, that the devil, I better not get that one wrong, amen, that the devil makes, uh, to Eve in the garden. Notice them with me. Back in verse number one, the devil looks at the woman, and says, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now we know, of course, that's not what God had said, and Eve even corrects him. It's interesting to note, though, that when she corrects him, she corrupts God's Word. Because she says that God has said we cannot eat of a particular tree, but then she goes on to say that He said we shan't, that we can't even touch that tree. And that's not what God said. God said that they could not eat of it. God didn't say they couldn't touch it. Now let me say a a hearty amen here to Sister Eve, even though she shouldn't have changed the Word of God. I do think it's a good idea if God says you shouldn't partake in something, uh, to not touch it, to not be around it, uh, to not tempt yourself, uh, just the same. But it's interesting that she adds to God's Word. The devil takes away from God's Word. She adds to God's Word. And in both instances, the truth of what God had said was lost. Verse number 4, the devil makes this reply. He says, ye shall not surely die. Now, I understand he says this in the same breath with the next statement, but this is a statement wholly unto itself. 
He is saying that the consequences are not something that you need to worry about. Verse number 5, he gives an explanation for his reasoning. He says, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. In these three statements, the devil does something fascinating. First, he confesses some truth. There are some things he readily affirms. Then he conceals some truth. You know, the devil never tells the whole story. And by doing so, we find that he corrupts the truth that God had communicated. I find it interesting, you know, I began to think about this. I go ahead and admit to you, I began to think about it. I was listening to the preacher preaching revival and he's preaching out of the book of Job. And uh, The devil, of course, speaks to God in the book of Job about Job. And I began to think about occasions in Scripture in which the devil spoke. Now, you and I both know that the devil is the main antagonist in Scripture. He is a real individual. Uh, he is literal. He is not figurative. He is not the embodiment of anything. He is a real individual with a personality and a will and a desire. And it's fascinating to me to think that when you go through the Word of God, Brother Ken, there's really not that many times that the devil speaks directly. Uh, can I just say this this morning? Could it be he lets other folks do his talking for him most of the time? But on three occasions in Scripture... But Charlie, the devil spoke explicitly and at length. Now, I'm not saying there are not other cases. I understand when he when he rebelled against God, he said, I will be like the Most High. But I mean, three times when he just opens his mouth and begins to speak. And it's fascinating to me to consider these three occasions and notice his tactics. I would notice with you this morning these three occasions. The first we have read this morning, and it's in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. The next time that the devil speaks was what the preacher preached on in revival a couple weeks ago, and that's in the book of Job, chapters 1 and chapter number 2. And then there is one other occasion in which the devil speaks at length, and it's in both Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4, parallel passages, but it was at the the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's interesting to me. The first time when Satan spoke, he spoke to man. The second time when he spoke, he spoke to God in the life of Job. And the third time, Brother Ken, when he spoke, he spoke to the God-man. Sounds to me like the devil is trying every angle he can to discourage the will and work of God. Can I make a passing statement here? You know, the devil ain't just going to try something one time. If your plan is to give up at the first sign of trouble, he's got you beat. He's got more resolve than you. He'll just keep coming. Even in the life of the Lord Jesus, the Bible says the devil departed from him for a season. Now, if the devil would come back and make another run at the Lord Jesus Christ, you think he won't come back for a second helping of us as well? He spoke on these three occasions. But, you know, if we consider what's transpiring, I think we have little understanding in these passages why he spoke. In Genesis chapter 3, I noticed that he spoke at the moment of man's sin in order to deceive him. Now that's no surprise that the devil would be standing there the first time man ever disobeyed God. It's what the devil wants out of us. He wants us to disobey God. There's no hope for him. He is a lost being. Uh, He cannot be redeemed. Scripture has sealed his fate and destiny. 
He cannot dethrone God. He can't kick God off of His throne. But I'll tell you what He can do. He can cause you and me to kick God off of the throne of our hearts and to live in disobedience. So He spoke at the moment of man's sin to deceive him. The second time He spoke in the life of Job when speaking to God, He spoke at the moment of man's steadfastness to disparage him. You remember the whole context there in the book of Job is that the devil, uh, the, God looks at the devil says, where have you been? And the devil says, I've been walking up and around through this world doing anything I want. He says, I've been walking to and fro through the earth and up and down in it. And that was his way of saying, this is my dominion, this is my kingdom, and I've been doing... The, the God said, what you've been doing? And he said, anything I want to do. And the Lord looked at him and said, not in Job's life you have Hadst thou considered my servant Job a perfect and an upright man and one that escheweth evil, one that feareth God? He said, you may have most folks, but thank God he didn't have Job. Amen. And then, of course, after calamity and tragedy falls at the hand of Satan in the life of Job, uh, the devil comes back to crow about it to God. and uh, He says, I've been walking up and down doing anything I want, even in the life of Job. God says, hast thou considered my servant Job? I'm glad to know, listen, the devil may get some kind of foothold in our life, but that don't mean we have to let him run things. He, he, he may bring all of hell against us, but that don't mean that we have to bow before him. Because the Lord says about Job, he still retains his integrity. Uh, you've been, you think you've been doing everything you want. You took his kids, you took his cattle, uh, you took everything that you could, but he still serves me and he still retains his integrity. I'm glad that there's some things the gates of hell can't prevail against, aren't you? But in that moment, the reason the devil spoke was to criticize Job. In both occasions, on the first one, he said the only reason that Job serves you is because you bless him. God said, then take the blessing away from him. We'll see what happens. Job remains steadfast. The second time he comes back and he says, well, the only reason that you that Job serves you is because he still has his health and you've blessed his body. And so the uh, Lord looks at the devil and says, well, take his health, but don't kill him. And Job still retained his integrity. And then at the third occasion of Satan speaking, uh, in the Bible, he spoke at the moment of man's separation. And he spoke in order to distract him. The Lord Jesus had separated himself and gone apart into the wilderness to spend time with his father. It was a time of spiritual refreshing. It was a time of spiritual focus and fellowship in his life. And in that moment, the devil showed up to try to get his eyes off of the father and on to any number of things. Can I tell you this? The devil hates nothing worse than when we get serious about serving God. Now, that's not to suggest that the Lord Jesus was ever not serious, but it is to say that in your life and mine, when we separate ourselves away and when we determine we're going to live for God, when we uh, determine that we're going to do things for God, you mark her down, that part paints a target on our back. And the devil's going to do everything he can to distract us away from him. Now, there are some things that are common in each of these passages. Uh, the Bible tells me in John chapter number 8, verse 44, about the devil and about the way he works. The Lord Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, and He said about them, and by extension about the devil, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. The Bible says he abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Then the Lord said this, When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is a liar and the father of it. Can I tell you something? People say sometimes, well, preacher, the devil's just been whispering things in my ear. Well, glory to God, that means you've got some direction because if he's telling it to you, then it must not be true. Or he must only be telling you part of the truth. 
The devil doesn't have the capacity to speak in genuine, sincere truth. The truth is not in him. He's the father of lies. So we know the devil is a lie. We know the Bible tells us that he's subtle. But can I let you in on something about the devil's lies? They are not blatant lies. They are subtle lies. We was teaching this morning in Sunday school about the Antichrist and talking about how he will appear. Uh, and the Antichrist, he ain't going to show up as the meanest, baddest dude on the scene. He's going to show up and look just like Jesus Christ. And if a person was not saved and didn't know the Lord and looked at him, they would think that he was the Messiah. The devil, listen, the devil does not show up in contrast. He shows up in counterfeit. He don't show up and say, hey, I'm the devil. I'm here to rock your world. He shows up looking... Uh, harmless. So the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 11.3 about this subtlety. The Lord, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, writing to the church at Corinth, said, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So that tells me the devil, he desires to deceive us through subtlety. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, uh, the apostle talking about false prophets says this, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Can I make a a statement right here? Listen, the people that are the mouthpieces of Satan today very likely are not the militant atheists out there preaching God hatred. Uh, Very likely that ministers and uh, and those speaking on behalf of the devil uh, are not those that are uh, marching in in hatred and in rage against the Ten Commandments or against a display of Scripture. They are poor, broken souls that need the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But can I tell you who uh, the ministers of Satan are? Uh, It's the preacher that gets up won't preach the truth of the Word of God. It's a preacher that gets up and says we don't really have a Bible. It's a preacher that gets up and corrupts and waters down the truth and reality of the Gospel. Those are the people doing Satan's bidding today. It's those that would suggest that the waters of baptism or the sacraments of the church can get a person to heaven as opposed to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just telling you this morning when He shows up, He shows up in a subtle way. And in considering that thought, when we read these passages, and I'm not going to preach on all three of them today, don't don't worry. I just want to be confined to our text. But I would say this, that I've noticed in each of these instances that Satan spoke, there are three things that are worth considering. First, we notice there is always a half-truth. The devil loves to use a half-truth. Did you know a half-truth is more potent, effective, and destructive than a whole lie? Because most of the time, you'll accept the premise and basis of a half-truth, but you only know half of the situation. If I walked up to you and if I said, hey, the sky is uh, orange, you'd say, man, you're crazy, you're nuts. But if I come up and I tell you something that sounds believable, something that sounds like it could be true, even though it is not, you are more likely to accept that. I'm going to call the half-truth the truth in the lie. In other words, I want to look at what Satan says and consider the truths that he confessed, the things that he said that were, in some respect, true. Number two, I want us to think about the hidden truth. In other words, the half of the truth Uh, And we want to look at the other half and make it complete and whole. I'm going to call this the lie in the truth. So there is a truth in the lie. But listen, there's also a lie in the truth that he tells because there's a whole other half of it 
Then, number three, I want us to think about the whole truth. I want us to think not only about the truth and the lie and the lie and the truth, but I want us before we leave today to look at the truth of the truth. I'm glad to know that we can know the truth this morning. In a world, hey, where they tell you not even to believe what your eyeballs tell you anymore, I'm glad I can hold this King James Bible and know I have the truth this morning. So I want us to consider these three things. First, Let's look at what he says and notice carefully the truths that he confessed. Now this is important not only to note that there are some things that he affirmed as being true, but to notice also what he left out and how he corrupted them. Notice the first statement that the devil makes. He looks at Eve and says this, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, very often, uh, preachers, when they preach on the Word of God and the preservation of the Word of God, and I, by the way, myself have done this and probably will do it again, will point to the fact that the devil rejected that God had spoken. But can I give a little nuance to that? The devil didn't really reject or deny that God had spoken. He instead said, we cannot really know what God has said or has meant. Can I say that is more akin to the lie that a lot of Bible perversions are promoting today. It's not to suggest there's no such thing as a Bible, but just to say we can't really know what the truth of the Word of God is. The devil, when he speaks here, notice that his lie spoke of the truth of sin's existence. There is a uh, heretical movement and, and system of thought. It's been around, I mean, since the early church but it's very pervasive today. And I'm going to use a big word here, but I'll define it so you stick with me. It's identified by the word antinomianism. Now, what that word means, uh, nomianism carries the idea of defining things, quantifying things, putting a numerical value to things. And antinomianism basically means this, that you cannot really define what's right and what's wrong. It basically proclaims that there's really no such thing as sin, but that because of the grace of God in the life of the believer, you can just live any old way you want, and God really doesn't care one way or the other because grace, whatever that means. Can I tell you something? That thought, that ideology, finds no footing in Scripture. I'm thankful that the blood of Christ cleanseth us from all unrighteousness. I'm thankful if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But can I tell you something? God didn't save you to sin. He saved you to serve. He didn't save you to live like He didn't save you. Somebody say amen to that. He saved you to change your life. God is deeply interested that we live righteously. The antinomian movement would proclaim that there really is no such thing as sin. You know, the devil himself, Brother Charlie, wouldn't even be so bold as to say there's not sin. Here he affirms that sin exists. He acknowledges that God has spoken, but he calls into question what the criteria of God's commandment was. He overcharges God. He says, God's told you that everything's sin. Can I tell you something? It's, it's high time you heard a fundamentalist preacher say this. And I am a fundamentalist preacher. And I ain't afraid of saying I'm a fundamentalist preacher. I'm not a, fundament, a fundamentalist Muslim. I'm not going to cut your head off. But I am a fundamentalist preacher. Amen. That means I believe in the fundamentals of the faith. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. But you know, it's about time you heard a fundamentalist say this. Not everything's sin. There are things that are sin. But not everything is sin. Uh, there are some things that God has permitted. There are some things that God has granted for the enjoyment and pleasure of our experiences, His creation. And listen, there are a lot of things that are sin. But to proclaim that everything's sin is really to proclaim that nothing's sin. 
And that's what the antinomianist does. He says, well, you know, really we don't know what sin is. So really, Brother Charlie, there is no sin. Can I tell you this? The devil looks and he says, God has told you, you can't eat of any tree. That wasn't true. It's interesting that even the devil himself will acknowledge that God had spoken and that there were certain things that God had prohibited. Uh, when we live a life of permissiveness, of license, when we live a life saying, I can just do any old thing I want, it don't matter because of the grace of God, we're standing on ground that even the devil himself wouldn't stand on. Even the devil acknowledged truth's existence. Number two, the devil says this in verse four. Of course, Eve replies and corrects him and says, well, God has said that, uh, you know, we can eat of any tree that we want except for this one and we're not even supposed to touch it. If we touch it, if we eat of it, we're going to die. And the devil looks at her and says in verse four, the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. Now, again, I think there is a tendency to to project that what the devil's saying here is that sin has no consequence. But I do not think that's what he is saying. I think rather he is speaking about the immediate effects, Brother Charlie, of what was going to happen when they ate of that fruit. Eve was under the impression that this was something like Snow White's apple and she ate of it and she was just going to lay out right there on the floor. But the devil says, hey, it's not going to be like that. You eat of that fruit, you're not going to just lay down and die. Instead, you're going to become as gods, knowing good and evil. He was saying essentially this, that the consequences of your sin are not going to fall upon you this very day. It's not going to drop on you at this very moment. And can I make a statement here? That is oftentimes true. You see, his lie spoke of the truth of sin's existence, but his lie also spoke of the timing of sin's consequence. You go through the Bible, particularly the book of Psalms, and over and over and over and over again, you'll find the, the, the Holy Ghost under inspiration, uh, or the, the penman under inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He'll be writing and he'll say things like this. How long, Lord, till the wicked are judged? Why are the wicked not judged? Lord, they blaspheme you because you're not judging them. They assume that you don't exist over and over and over again. It is a common strain in the Word of God that sin very often though it will always bring consequences, very often those consequences are delayed. You with me this morning? If, I, if I'm wrong, run me out. If I'm not, help me this morning. Very often you'll commit sin and those consequences may not bear fruit immediately in that moment. Uh, the Bible tells us that some men's judgment comes beforehand and some man's judgment comes in the afterlife. There are certain things, certain sins that we commit. Listen, we may get away with it for a long time. I know people that live like that, that are living in sin and, and they're not seeing the fruit and the product of that sin in a negative way immediately in their life. Now, I would say this, the temptation to sin would not be very strong if we always saw the totality, the consequences, just moments after we committed that sin. But really, Brother Charlie, if we're being honest, most sins we commit take a little time to catch up with. The book of Numbers tells us uh, and, and not for no reason, the book of Numbers tells us to be sure your sin will find you out. Because very often sin's consequences do not happen in that very moment. And that, I think, is what Satan is saying. You're saying, you're going to eat that fruit even. You're not going to fall down dead. And he was telling the truth. She did not fall down physically dead when she ate of that fruit. But you know, her death began in that moment. Her physical death and her spiritual death did transpire at that very moment. The devil, he spoke of the timing of sin's consequence. And then verse 5, he says this, For God doth know... It's interesting, people want to tell God what He knows. <laughs> God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, 
ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Our King James Bible has that word gods with a little g. And I think that's immensely appropriate, don't you? Because they didn't become like God, but they became like the false gods. They became weak, powerless, corrupt. Uh, the Bible tells us here, the devil looked at her and said, you eat of that fruit and it's going to change you. And you know that's true. Sin always changes a person. He's telling the truth here when he says... Now, he lies about how it's going to change her. And we'll say a word about that in a moment. He proclaims that she's going to uh, become as... that their eyes would be open. And by the way, that did happen. Their eyes were open. They'd never seen that they were sinners. Now they see that they're sinners. They become as gods, knowing good and evil. And it is true that God could distinguish between good and evil in a way that they could not by themselves without God revealing it to them. And it's true that after that, their conscience was activated and was pricked and they began to understand and know that there were some some things right and some things wrong. But here's basically what the devil's saying. You eat of that fruit, you're never going to be the same. And that is exactly, precisely true about sin in our lives. Sin never leaves you the way you found it. It will always fundamentally and, and unchangingly transform you. It will forever and fundamentally change you. You know, there are certain things you see and you can't unsee them. You may ask God's forgiveness and He'll forgive you, but you won't ever unsee those things. There may be things that you do that you participate in and the grace of God forgive you and the blood of Christ cleans you and wash you, but the memories of that thing are forever in your mind and in your heart. And certainly there are things, activities that we can take place in. There are sins. Listen, a man can drink his whole life and God will forgive him of being a drunkard, but that doesn't mean it will heal and fix his liver. Sin changes you. And most of us would probably admit that we longed for a time when we were younger when we did not know as much of the world as we do today. But sin, when it lays its hands on you, it leaves an indelible print. It never changes. It's never going to go away. I'm thankful there will come a day we'll be given a new body, praise the Lord. But in this life, when we commit sin, it changes us. So these are the truths that he confessed. He said, well, yeah, God's spoken and He's prohibited some things and, and there are some things in God's economy that are wrong and uh, but, you know, Eve, you commit those things. And you won't necessarily see the effect of that immediately. You're not going to die immediately. But what's going to happen to you, Eve? You won't die immediately, but you will be changed and you'll never be the same ever again. And every one of those things he said is in a sense true. It is a half-truth. It is the truth in the lie he told. And anytime the devil lies to you, there will always be a truth in what he tells you. Then I want us to notice the truths that he concealed. We've seen half of the truth. Let's look at the other half of the truth. And let's think about the first statement that he makes. He says, Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. What he was saying was this, God has spoken, there are certain things that are wrong, but God has overcharged you. He has overstated what is right and what is wrong. You see, really, Eve, he's telling you that everything's wrong, and that can't be true. Uh, this is, by the way, a lie that a lot of young people buy into in their life. I, I can't tell you the numbers of quote unquote recovering fundamentals. I got no patience for that garbage. If you're, listen, if, if, if the worst thing ever happened to you is a church bus brought you to church, God help you. If the worst thing that ever happened to you is some preacher got loud when you were sitting there and it scared you when you was a little kid, uh, God help you. I hope you survive the ride home. I don't have no patience for all this recovering fundamentalist garbage. 
I'm thankful for the day that a Bible-believing preacher preached the gospel to me. He might have said some things uh, that might have been out of sort with what I would have... My, my uh, delicate sensibilities might have preferred, but I'd be in hell if he hadn't told me the truth. But very often, listen, these, these groups, these recovering fundamentalists, well, I grew up in church and preacher preached hard, now I'm scarred forever. Yeah, that sounds likely. Most of these guys, what they'll say is they'll say, well, you know, that, 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 that in those churches just everything's wrong. No, listen, you know, the truth of the matter is this. Not everything is wrong. And the devil was right in saying God has spoken and sin exists. But you know the truth he didn't tell? Listen now, some trees were permitted, but that tree was prohibited. You know what the devil tries to tell you? The devil tries to tell you, and a lot of a lot of quote unquote Christians today will try to tell you, well, that Christianity just tells you everything's wrong. What they're really saying is that their sacred cow is wrong, and it makes them mad that the Bible pointed it out. Hey, listen, let me tell you something. You want to live a life of fun. You just get in, you just get in with Jesus Christ and serve him wholeheartedly, and you'll enjoy life. You'll find out that all that garbage they're selling on commercials is not what it takes to have fun and peace and joy and excitement in life. But the devil will come along and will tell you, well, God just don't want you doing anything. That's not true. There's plenty of things God wants you to do. He just don't want you doing the wrong thing. And if he can get you to buy that God has said everything is wrong, you know what's going to happen? Yet? And it will make you perfect. It's always been funny to me. You know, the church of God believes that a man can be sinless and can, can uh, attain to sinless righteousness on this side of the grave. And I've always thought, show me proof. Show me proof. Show me one. I remember a story years ago. Oliver B. Green was sitting in his tent up somewhere way out in the country getting ready to have an evangelistic tent meeting. And uh, he was out. Of course, back then they was doing all the work themselves and they was uh, digging a ditch for the runoff, the rainwater to run off into so it would flood out the tent. And uh, he was down in this uh, red clay and just covered head to toe in red clay. And uh, about that time he heard a car speed into the gravel that they had laid for a parking lot sling gravel everywhere. Uh, Dr. Green uh, climbed up out of the uh, hole that he was digging through the shovel to the side, saw a man step out in a nice little double-breasted navy suit with his hair slicked up, got out, walked up to Dr. Green and said, what's going on here? And Oliver Green said, well, we're having a tent meeting. We're wanting to get people saved and everything. He said, well, that's good and everything, as long as you're not one of them once saved, always saved preachers. And Oliver Green said, well, sir, we, we do believe in the eternal security of the believer. We believe that once a person's saved, they don't lose their salvation. And uh, we believe a person can't work their way to heaven. He said, well, I don't believe that. He said, well, you don't. He said, no, sir, I don't believe that. I believe a man has to live right before God if he wants to go to heaven. And I've not committed a sin in 20 years. I'm living perfect. And Oliver Green took those. And if you ever saw Oliver Green, he, he wasn't nine foot tall or anything, but he's stout. Uh, and uh, Oliver Green reached out with muddy red Georgia clay hands and grabbed that man's nice, beautiful suit pushed the lapel out to the side and smeared mud all over him. That man stepped back and said, what are you doing? Dr. Green looked at him and said, well, I'm just checking for pin feathers. Anybody that's lived 20 years and not committed a sin ought to have a halo or some feathers by now. Dr. Green learned real quick that that fella, if he, had, he broke his streak that day. <laughs> now you see, the reality is this to proclaim that, that, that a person, and this I guess is really what I'm trying to get at, People that believe a person has to be perfect to get to heaven, that they have to live uh, sinlessly and righteously and they can't commit any sin. 
the reality is that doesn't make them more righteous. It doesn't make them more holy. It doesn't make them more separated. What it does, it makes them more permissive because nobody can reach that bar. Nobody can reach that level. So instead of saying, I'm going to live right, I'm going to live clean, they redefine what is right and what is clean to make it fit what they are and how they're living, however that is. To claim that everything is wrong is not going to make you quit doing anything. What it's going to make you do is continue to do everything and redefine what is sin and what is not. And that's what the devil's trying to do. And that's what much of modern Christianity does today. Much of modern Christianity redefines sin in such a way that it really doesn't even exist. You can't tell a man what is sin and what is right and what is wrong. Most preachers with a bunch of letters after their name, enough degrees uh, to chill a thermometer, most of them won't tell you what is sin and what is right and what is wrong. They speak in vague platitudes and generalities, lest they offend uh, the very people that they need to be preaching to help. So the other half of the truth of this it was about the parameters of sin. He said, God has said everything's wrong. That's not true. God hadn't said everything was wrong. But God had indeed said that that tree was wrong. The devil will stand at the only tree in your garden that you have no business eating of and say, why can't you eat of this tree? The devil will stand at the one tree in your garden that you have no business eating at and say, why can't you eat of this tree? You know what Eve should have said? I don't have to eat of that tree. Look at this orchard I got. And you know, we as believers, when the devil comes along and says, why is it so wrong for you to do this? You ought to say, I ain't got time to be involved in that. Look at all the blessings and goodness of God. Look at all the things I can enjoy. i got too much to do serving God, living for God, enjoying the life that He purchased for me on Calvary to be caught up in that mess. I'm telling you this, you don't need sin's pleasures. For they always sour. They're sweet at first, but at the end they bite like a serpent. So he, he, he told a half-truth. The truth he concealed was about the parameters of sin. Some trees were permitted, but that tree was prohibited. And he did not say it so that Eve wouldn't eat of any trees. He said that so that Eve would eat of that tree. And then he makes a second uh, fallacy in what he says. Verse 4 he says this, The serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Now, there is an abject lie in what he says. But there is also, I think, a way in which we can understand some truth. We talked about it a moment ago. It's what he's saying, and I think it's a, I think it's a, a, an understandable, uh, uh, you know, perspective on the passage to say what he's saying to Eve is, you're not going to die right now. And physically speaking, he was 100% true. Can I point this out to you though? She did not, com- she did not, uh, finish her death in that moment, but she did begin her death in that moment. And can I say to you, maybe we could cope with the consequences of sin if the consequences we felt in the seconds after sin was the worst that it got. But can I tell you this? It only gets worse from where you're standing. If you're living in sin, it only gets worse from where you're standing. But I think there's another thing he concealed, and that's this. The Bible teaches us there's not just one type of death. In fact, the Bible says, but Charlie, when, when uh, sinners are cast into the lake of fire, the Bible calls that the second death. And what it's saying is that there are two types of death. There is the first type of death, of which we are all familiar with, and that's when your heart stops beating, your lungs stop breathing, your brain stops firing off, and things like that. That's the first, That's physical death. But that's not the only death. There's also spiritual death. To be cast out of the fellowship of God, to be forever banished from being able to behold His favor and His face in in His righteousness and in His blessing. 
That's the second death. For a man to die, for a man to partake in sin, and for that sin to grip hold and to produce in him death, that is the second death. And here's the reality. He told a lie. He concealed a lie about the punishment of sin. You know, you may commit sin, and you may not see a physical consequence of it immediately. Can I promise you this? There has immediately been a spiritual consequence. Your health may not be affected but your spiritual well-being has been touched the moment you've partaken in sin. Can I tell you this? We may say to ourselves, well, preacher, you know, live fast, die young, you know, leave a good-looking corpse. You've heard them say things like that. Can I tell you that this life doesn't end when this life ends? Every person in this room is going to spend eternity somewhere. And even us as saved, born-again believers, we are going to have to live with the lack of service and obedience to God when we leave this world, we're going to be judged. We're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and know there's no danger if we've been saved of being cast into hell. There is certainly a danger of having squandered our life and our opportunities. I'm just saying this, there's more than one kind of consequence for sin. And that's what the devil did not tell her. There's a second type of death. There's a second type of consequence. And it's true that she might get away for a long time with the physical consequences of her sin, but the spiritual consequences began immediately. I've seen this in my own life. I'm sure you've seen it in yours. Things that you and I have done and we thought nobody knew about, but the Lord knew about it. And we know He knew about it because our life soured the moment we did it. All of a sudden, our mood and our attitude soured. Our prayer life died. Our passion for the Lord uh, fell asleep and went dead. And, and in our life, I mean, just immediately, Brother Ken, the moment we committed it. You know why? Because there are some things that may take a long time to reach you, but there are some things that are present with you all the time. He lied. He concealed the truth about the, the punishment of sin. And then number five, uh, verse number five, he says this, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. I think of all the statements that he makes, this one hits closest to the truth. I mean, really, reading it from where we sit, there's not much to criticize in what the devil says. He says that you, your eyes will be opened. That's exactly what happened. He says you shall be as gods, little g, not as God, but as gods, little g, knowing good and evil. That's exactly what happened. The problem was, not as much even really in what Satan said, it was in what he heard. You know, sometimes deception is not as much about what you say, but what you get the other person to hear. There's something I've learned in ten years of pastoring. I've had conversations with people at length, long conversations. And it wasn't until hours later that I realized we was having two different conversations. You ever had that happen? I mean, I've talked to someone and I've been saying something, they're saying something. But the problem is we was listening to what we was saying instead of listening to what they're saying. And when we walked away from it, we really was no closer to understanding. Sometimes deception is not about what you say, it's about what you lead the other person to believe. That's really the fundamental purpose of deception. What he says here is not necessarily all that far off. But there's something that he does not say. The basic spirit, the meat of what he says is this. Eve, if you eat of this fruit, you'll be changed forever. And that sounded good to her. She was, for whatever reason, discontented with her current circumstances. And so that sounded pleasing to her. But you know the truth he didn't tell? The truth that he didn't tell had to do with the pollution of sin. Sin does change you but never for the better. It does not deify you. 
deify, like a deity, like a God. He doesn't make you like God, capital G. Makes you like a God, lowercase g. You know, it's interesting, and I don't, I don't know what all there is to this, but it's, a, it's an interesting observation for me to consider uh, the old pantheistic gods of the Romans and the Greeks, uh, Brother Charlie, because you know, those gods were really, here's what they did. They took human characteristics like lust, greed, violence, anger, covetousness, things like that, and then they assigned a God to each of those horrible, awful attributes. I remember reading a commentator one time that said this, and I like this. You might have heard me say this before, but I'm going to say it again. He said that the, the old Roman and Greek gods, it was as though you took a characteristic of man and then drew a line infinitely out into the universe, ever expanding it, blowing it up, making it bigger, making it larger than life, so that man had greed, but then they had a God of greed who was the embodiment of pure greed. And their gods were just an exploded version of themselves. You know what God did? I like this for Jim. You know what God did? Here's infinite, vast, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God. The very one that uh, measured the universe in the span of His hands, that meted out the ocean in the little lines uh, that crease across His divine, eternal palm. That God took Himself, robed Himself in flesh, drew a line from the throne of God to a manger in Bethlehem, robed Himself in flesh in a way that man could look upon Him could see the pain in his eyes, could see the laughter in his heart and in his voice, could experience his embrace. Man took all that was bad about himself and magnified it into the universe. God took all that is good about Himself, and that's all of Him. Amen. He's all good. Took all that is good and wonderful and glorious of Himself and robed it in flesh and placed it in a manger in Bethlehem. What a God we have. What a God we have. But you see, here's what they became. They became like those little G-gods that the Romans and the pagans were. It didn't make them closer uh, to the person and character of the God that sits on the circle of the earth. Instead, it made them the embodiment of lust and of greed and of covetousness and of all these things that gripped their soul and has gripped man's soul ever since then. What he told them was, it's going to make you like God, but it didn't. It did not deify them. It didn't make them like a deity. It didn't make them like God. It didn't deify them. It destroyed them. And I'll tell you this, sin will change you, but never for the better. So all this being said, you know, there's not, there's not your truth and my truth. There's not really this half of the truth and that half of the truth. There's just truth. And, and, and the devil, in seeking to deceive man, he tries to dismantle the truth and only give part of it this and that. We've seen the we've seen the half truth. We've seen the part of it that he said, and then we've seen the hidden truth, the part that he wouldn't say. So let's put those together and consider the whole truth, and let's consider the truths that the devil corrupted. What's the whole story, as a man once said? Look at the first phrase that he gives. He says, "Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden." Now, he makes a statement, and here he corrupts a truth about the purpose of God's commandments. What he's really saying is that God's commandments on you, Eve, are unreasonable. God's told you everything's wrong and everything can't be wrong. So why don't you just go ahead and live as you see fit? One of these days it'll all get sorted out. By saying this, Steve, what he was really saying was that God's commands are unreasonable. They're unwieldy. They're like chains on our, 
and our arms are on our feet. They're like a yoke on our shoulders. It's unreasonable that God would ask all these things. Here's the basic thing He was communicating. He was saying that God's commandments are restricted. It's not fair for God to tell us what we can and can't do. Can I let you in on the whole truth? God's commandments are not restrictive only. They are restrictive. There are certain things God says, do not do this. There's no, no situational ethics. No, maybe it's right this time. Maybe not the next time. There are certain things God said, this is sin. There are certain things God says, touch not the unclean thing. And if God says it's sin in His Word, it's sin. But God's commandments are not only restrictive. Instead, fundamentally, they're protective. <laughs> All those trees in that garden. You ever ask yourself, why did God tell her not to eat of that one? You think God was territorial about that tree? You think God was selfish with His trees? The Bible says He planted a garden and put man in it. You think that God was just trying to make her miserable? The Bible says He had the habit of walking with them in the cool of the day and spending time with them. You think He's just trying to get rid of her? I don't think so. I think there is one reason and one reason alone that a reasonable mind can, can ascertain as to why He told her not to do this. And that was for her own good. God didn't have no problem with trees. God didn't have no problem with fruit. God didn't have no problem with Eve having a full belly. But He knew that this tree would kill her and Adam. So He said, you can have any tree you want, any single one that you want, but don't eat of that one. Can I tell you, God tells us what sin is, not because He wants to ruin our day. That's the attitude of a child. You remember being a child and resenting it when your parents would get on you? You thought, man, ain't they got better things to do? Truth is, I'm an adult now. No, we don't. We don't. We really don't. That's, that's our hobby. Ruining your day. No, that's silly, right? The truth is, most parents don't want to have to be corrective to their children, but they do it because they love their child. And let me tell you, let me tell you the truth the devil won't tell you. The things that God says are sin are not sin because God just on a whim decided they were wrong. They are sin because they are contrary to His holiness and righteousness and consequently, they're destructive to your life. So there was a truth he corrupted about the purpose of God's commandment. Number two, there was a truth that he corrupted about the price of sin's pleasure. The serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. In a sense, that was true. She ate of the fruit. She did not fall down dead. But instead, a spiritual death was set in motion in her life. You see, here's what he was trying to do. He was trying to say, God said it's going to be real bad if you eat of this fruit. But I don't think it will be. I think you'll be okay with it. I think you'll live with it. The devil's always told me that when he's wanted me to sin. Hasn't he you? Hasn't he always? Has the devil ever come along and said, now listen, you commit this sin if you want, but it really ain't worth it. He never says that, does he? He doesn't say that. He comes along and he says, hey, don't, don't worry about it. Just forget. Hey, it's not going to be that big of a deal. But can I remind you of this? Listen, he tried to portray sin's consequences as minimal. But can I remind you of the death that they died that day? Brother Kim was not... A physical death began, was set in motion that day. But the death that really came to fruition that day was not a physical death, it was a spiritual death. He portrayed sin's consequences as minimal. And can I tell you that if the only consequences of sin, I want to be careful how I say this, our body's the temple of the Holy Ghost, amen? We ought to take care of it. We ought to be good to it. But if the only consequences of sin we experience were the physical consequences in this short life that we live, which is but for a moment, you could maybe make the argument that it's worth it. That's what the world does. 
The world says, hey, listen, live, live free and die young. Just go ahead and live however you want. Everybody's going to die one of these days anyway. You might enjoy the ride while you go. And I can see why they make that appeal. Here's the problem. They don't think about what happens five seconds into eternity. They don't think about the fact that there's life after this life and there's death after that death. He tried to portray sin's consequences as minimal. And if the only consequences had been the physical ones that day, they would have been somewhat minimal. But the truth is there were spiritual consequences that were eternal that took place. And then there's a third thing, and I'll say this and be done. We find that he corrupted a truth about the purpose of God's commandment. He corrupted the truth about the price of sin's pleasure. But notice in verse 5. He says, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And each of these things is in a sense true. But here's the truth that he corrupted. Because he only told half the truth, he corrupted the truth about the product of sin's experience. He implied there were certain things that they would experience whenever they partook in sin. But in doing so, therein lay the deception of what he said. For instance, he proclaimed that sin is enlightening. He said, your eyes will be open. And in a sense, that was true. But you know, in the New Testament, John chapter number 9, the Lord Jesus sheds a little light on that. And he says that sin, while it is true, sin may experientially open our eyes to some things. It effectually blinds us to other things. No man is so blind as a man enjoying his sin. He cannot be reasoned with. He cannot be talked to. He cannot... If they have made up their mind that they are unwilling to accept it. How many people have you and I known that are living in sin and they're way past enjoying their sin? Their sin is wrecking them. It's wrecking their family. And you plead with them and you beg with them and you pray for them and you agonize over them. But still they cannot see You know what has happened? Sin has blinded them. They're past enjoying their sin. It's a pride thing now. And for them to admit that their life is a mess is for them to admit they were wrong. And their pride is preventing them. So he hid the truth about the blindness of sin. He said that sin is enlightening, but instead it is blinding. Number two, he hid the truth about the brokenness of sin. He said, ye shall be as gods. Now, I don't know what Eve thought in that moment. I suppose she thought, well, that'll be good. We'll be just like the God that loved us and created us. Here's what he was saying. He was saying that sin is exalting. If you commit sin, man, that's gonna, that's gonna push up your status in this world. That's gonna elevate you. That's gonna make you more than what you are. Can I tell you something? When a man commits sin, they do become more than what they are. More scars. More brokenness. More bad memories. There's folks in this room that give anything in the world to be less than what they are today. There's folks, I'm telling you the truth, some of y'all witness and testify for me with an amen. There are folks in this room that would give all that they own to be less than what they are today. Less memories, less guilt, less regret, less shame because of the things they've done in their life. It's going to lift you up, it's going to raise you up, going to exalt you, but that's not what it does. You see, sin is not exalting. Instead, it's debasing. It didn't put them at higher status. It kicked them out of the garden. It put them out of fellowship with God. It put them in the sweat and toil of the field and the thorns and the misery and sickness of this world. It didn't leave them in better shape than it found them. It left them in worse. And then he makes this statement. He says, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And I think there's an implicit thing going on here. I think he's not only saying you will be able to discern good and evil. 
think he's probably also saying you'll be able to decide good and evil. Doesn't that make sense? I mean, in this context, they're talking about, Brother Charlie, what God has decided is right and wrong. That's the whole conversation. Can we eat of this tree? Can we eat of that tree? Can we eat of any tree? What does God say? But now he comes through and says, you eat of this and you'll know good and evil. Not just that you'll discern it, you'll decide it. You'll be the one that runs your life. You'll be the one that makes the decisions. He was claiming that sin is liberating. But you know, he didn't tell the truth, not only about the blindness and brokenness, but about the bondage of sin. Sin don't set you free. Sin puts you in chains. He claimed that sin is liberating. Instead, it is binding. It binds our life. It puts chains upon us. It puts us in bondage. It makes us a slave. Listen, I'd rather be a bond slave than a sin slave. I'd rather be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ than be a servant of sin as my master. Can I tell you something? You won't feel better about it once you commit it. You won't have more liberty. You won't have more choices. Go down, man. You can go down. Go down under the bridge. And I'm not saying everybody down there is, it has got this experience, but a lot of them do. Go down, go down under the bridge to the people with track marks in their arm and ask them, why don't you just quit? They say, I can't. Why don't you just quit? Why don't you just throw those needles away? They say, I can't. I can't live without it. There was a day in their life they could have gone anywhere they wanted. There was a day in their life they made a free will choice to put that needle in their arm. And they could have chosen not to. I'm not saying that in judgment or in ugliness or criticism. I'm saying on that day they had a choice. But most of them, if you said, won't you just quit? They'd say, I can't. I can't. It's got a hold of me. You said, why don't you just fix your brokenness in your life? They'd say, I can't. You think they want to live that way. They don't want to live that way. I'm telling you that sin is a master, is a tyrant, is a dictator. The devil will tell you you can come and go as you want in the life of sin, but that is not the truth. If sin gets a hold of you, it'll become your master. It'll become your tyrant. Let's bow together this morning. Musician's going to come and play. and I don't know what the Lord has done in your heart and in your mind this morning. I do know this, that there's probably some of us that the devil has been whispering in our ear. We can hear the hiss of the serpent this morning. We, we, can, we can feel the wind off of that tongue. We can hear the the subtlety in what He's whispering to us about some area of our life in which He's trying to beguile us and lead us into disobedience. If that's you, why don't you yield to the Lord this morning? Let Him have His will and His way. There might be somebody here that would say, you know, preacher, you describe my child. You describe my grandchild. You describe my sibling. You describe my parent. You describe my friend or my co-worker, my cousin, my uncle, my loved one, my aunt. You describe that person that is broken and in bondage. Who that the devil has control of. And they've bought the devil's lie and they've listened to his hiss. And I don't want to see them live in that bondage. You know the thing you can do from where you and I stand? We can get down on this altar and we can speak the truth into the ears and heart and mind of the holy, almighty God that hears and answers prayer. We can lift their name up to God's throne room and ask Him to intervene. Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify Your Son.